Welcome to another episode of Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Ms. Ariane Grand Gasway, chronic pain patient, patient advocate, and author of They Called Me a Drug Seeker, Here's What Their Opioid Policy Did to Me, an opinion piece published in Filter Magazine. And with that, I'd like to welcome Ms. Grand Gasway. Thank you for joining us, Ariane. Oh, my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about where your journey began, how you first became a chronic pain patient, and what that experience was like. Okay. Um, I, I've had chronic pain issues uh, for a long time, but the, the majority of my chronic pain issues started in 2010. And we were cutting trees on our property here at home, and I was injured. Um, I sustained a cervical spine injury. Um, it herniated a few discs in my cervical spine and caused spinal cord compression. So that kind of led to treatment with opioid uh, medications amongst other things like muscle relaxers um, to kind of tamp down the pain while I was healing. And tell us how that progressed because in your op in your opinion piece, the op-ed, and I quote, you state, despite the frightening stories we're too familiar with, most patients who take opioid medication use them as prescribed. But something happened along the way in your care experience where you are no longer seen as a trusted patient taking opioids. Talk about that experience. Um, for a while, it was completely normal uh, with my doctor at Kaiser, um, and she and I had a good relationship uh, regarding my injury and treatment. We agreed that um, this was the best course of action. Uh, there was a, a consideration of surgery. Um, I declined surgery just due to my health issues, ongoing health issues. Um, and I wanted to kind of let it heal for a while before making a decision that big. It's a very invasive surgery. I needed a multi-level fusion. So we kind of worked together. I was on medications and then all of a sudden she met at an appointment with my husband and I and said that she was being watched by the DEA and that she was uncomfortable prescribing opioid medications um, long term. Um, she continued to prescribe for me for a while, but the relationship changed at that point, and she became more hesitant, offered up excuses as to why, but most of it centered around either policies that were being um, implemented with Kaiser uh, or and or the DEA and losing her license. You mentioned something very poignant in your piece. You talk about how your doctor was not making eye contact when she was telling you about these policies. Mm -hmm. Why did that stick out to you? What, what was it about the lack of eye contact that really stuck out to you? Um, what happens when you're a patient? Uh, the doctor-patient relationship um, is very intimate. Um, they're actually in control at that point of your quality of life. And the lack of connection 
um, when you have a doctor not making eye contact with you, it was just kind of dehumanizing in a way. And it was apparent that she was disconnected from our relate. She was disconnecting from our relationship as a doctor patient because she was really getting uncomfortable in her situation and really didn't want to deal with me anymore. That's the feel. Go into a little bit more of it because I think it's very important and you uniquely capture the element of trust and mutual respect that exists in a healthy patient-physician relationship that you perhaps lost or perhaps saw taken away from you. Talk a little bit about how you saw that playing out. Did you feel as if something was being taken from you? Well, um, like I said, it, it's a it's strange. Um, when someone, you have to go to a doctor to get medications and those medications are helping you function um, to whatever that looks like in your life as a chronic pain patient. Some can work, some can do household chores. So when the relationship starts breaking down with your physician, it's not just that relationship, it's your whole existence. When you leave that doctor's office, if your relationship has broken down and it eventually you lose access to medication that you need to function, it affects your whole life. Um, with the opioid issue, it starts out um, subtle. The subtle cues, the, the lack of eye contact, the dismissive attitudes, the comments um, like when she when I was presented with a, a drug testing contract and this was prior to the guidelines let you know I'll, I'll kind of give you that timeline too. this Kaiser kind of had their own pilot program um, so I was presented with a, a drug testing contract and I was kind of taken aback because I hadn't done anything wrong uh, I was taking my medication as prescribed. It wasn't like I was coming in and wanting early refills, all of that. And I, I kind of felt like I had done something wrong. And I expressed that to my doctor. And she basically shrugged it off and she said, it doesn't matter, people lie. And we need to see if you're taking your medications as prescribed. So... I, I'm sorry to interject. Your physician told yes. you people lie and that's effectively why we need to go through validating your adherence exactly um it was basically i told her i told her you know these these having to drug test makes me feel like i've done something wrong like i'm a criminal and i've done nothing wrong and she said well it doesn't matter People lie, and we need to have verification that you're taking your medication as prescribed. So I went ahead and, and did the drug test. That was just another kind of humiliation in a way. Um, even though I worked in the medical field and I performed drug testing for like pre-employment and things like that, uh, it was a little bit of a different feeling, um, this whole thing, because I was taking a certain medicine and being looked at with suspicion. 
And when I kind of went to the do the drug test, the medical assistants uh, handed me the, the drug screen, um, you know, the, the cup, and I was at the bathroom. I went to the, go to the bathroom, and they said, you need to leave all your personal stuff here with us because people cheat on these tests. And it was just another lack of trust, you know, that, that feeling of I'm not trusted. I'm doing something wrong, and I need to somehow prove that I'm not. Now, this was without any failed drug screen, without any suspicious prescription of medication refills with your physician, a new policy was implemented and the perception driving practices without you, quote-unquote, coming early, quote-unquote, having pain exacerbations, having a regular pain routine just shifted day and night. Correct. You talk about that in your piece, and I'm going to quote again. After prescribing practices changed, my new normal became a cycle of medical trauma. I even found myself practicing what to say to avoid saying something, quote-unquote, wrong, as you phrase it. Routine appointments and calling for monthly refills became anxiety. Doctor refuses to write me the prescriptions I depend on to inducing ordeals. Will this be the day my function? That's a powerful passage. Thank you. Somebody who may not be well-versed in the life of the chronic pain patient or who may try to dismiss the lived experience in what you're going through may claim, that seems like a bit of an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. What would you say to those types of individuals to may lack the understanding or maybe not willing to understand just how traumatizing that shift in experience can be. Well, again, I, I mean, you're depending on someone for your whole quality of life. Um, that, it, it seems small, oh, a prescription, but we're talking about a medication that allows you to mediate pain Um, It's the difference between me being able to do my dishes or interact with my family. Um, Simple things, going daily self-care even, uh, showering, things like that. So you're really facing losing your whole existence if you lose access to medication. And really it's made pretty clear um, that that may happen uh, to a lot of pain patients. Um, the dynamic, as, as the dynamic with my doctor and I changed, um, I got to the point, because of all the, the hostility that was there, the comments like uh, people lie, and I just got to the point where I felt so dehumanized, and I... I I remember that appointment, going to that appointment, that last appointment, and because every time you would go, if you would say that you had more pain, um, they would kind of suggest your pain medication wasn't working, or if you had good control of pain, maybe you didn't need pain medication. You couldn't say anything. Anything you said seemed to be used against you. Um, she may had made a comment about being dependent. She thought I was dependent on my medication and being, having worked in the medical field, of course I was dependent after a year and a half on the medication I was taking. It's natural to have physical dependence happen 
with an opiate. So I said, of course, I'm dependent on my medication. And she kind of had a like, aha, see? And it was strange to me. It was it was a, almost like she was setting the stage for the final blow um, where she was just going to finally tell me I'm not going to prescribe for you anymore. And I felt it coming at that point. Um, I had just said, I, I'm, I'm not going to be treated like this any longer. And uh, I told her um, I'm not comfortable with this anymore. I felt like it even kind of infringed upon my right, my medical rights for autonomy, patient autonomy. Um, and being that I had done nothing wrong, even my civil rights, I kind of felt like were being infringed upon at that point. To which she replied, she really didn't care. If that's the way I felt, I could find a new doctor. And she said at uh, that last... So I, I'm, I'm, I, she said, I don't care to you. Yes. She said, it doesn't matter. I don't care. This is policy. And she said... Um, if you have a problem with the policies, I think at this point it's time for you to find a new doctor. I can give you a list of doctors, other doctors at Kaiser. And I basically got up and I walked out. Wow. As a physician, I, I apologize for that because I, I just can't imagine what it's like as a physician to say that to a patient. It's just, I, I can't imagine the like, mental gymnastics you must be running through your mind to be able to justify that type of behavior. I, yeah. I, I want to go back to something you wrote again, and I, I keep coming back because I find what you had written so poignant and so prescient, both as a clinician and as somebody who is actively advocating for patients, that I feel I have to keep coming back. Uh, and, and I'm going to quote, Many medicines like antidepressants or corticosteroids can cause physical dependence. Medication dependence in the absence of harms continues wrongly to be viewed as evidence of addiction. And that's what you alluded to where you state, yes, there's a certain level of physical dependency as is a natural side effect of opioids, just as there would be a physical dependency to diabetic medications. Uh, when you try to explain that to blood pressure medications, to anti-hyperglycemic medication, dynamic to your physician, it seemed like she ultimately just... She attributed it to dependence equaling some kind of uh, addiction problem or drug-seeking behavior problem, I think was the connotation uh, during that appointment. Um, but despite you explaining to her, or at least expecting her to have a physician's level of understanding of opioid-based dependencies as a natural side effect. That's mm -hmm. still what she just jumped to. Correct. And later on, I kind of found out why, because they were, they were developing uh, algorithms through ICD-9 coding for substance use disorder. And part of that process was to basically red flag patients with uh, certain behaviors or um, diagnostic uh, codes in order to start labeling people with substance use disorder. And one of those criteria was uh, physical dependence. So 
it's kind of like if you tick the right boxes, you can get rid of problem patients is what the deal started to become. Yeah. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Later in the piece, you talk about your daughter, which the piece where you're talking about your own personal experiences. Where did you find that relationship? And where did you find the similarities and differences? To a point in contrast to your own experiences as a chronic pain patient, why did you decide to include that in? Well, my daughter had been seeking mental health therapy. Um, what's happened with the opioid issue is that it started out with opioids kind of being in the crosshairs of policy. And when the truth started leaking out little bit by little bit that deaths were primarily happening due to uh, polypharmacy, um, according to uh, death certificates, they started uh, targeting other drugs like benzodiazepines, which are used for mental health, um, anxiety, um, PTSD, um, panic disorder. And my daughter was diagnosed with all three of those. She in the past has had had issues with addiction and primarily to alcohol but had used other drugs as well during her recovery she was still trying to manage her mental health um, and she needed access to medications to manic panic disorder and the PTSD in order to work and to continue down the road to her during her recovery. Um, what ended up happening was Xanax was the medication that helped her the most and she was denied the medication that helped her at a therapeutic dose. They had given her a very low dose of another medication which she had told her clinician wasn't working. Um, and the clinician wouldn't up the dosage of the medication she was prescribing her to treat the panic disorder and PTSD. And my daughter <coughs> ended up going to a friend that she wow. thought she could trust and got what she thought was Xanax. And it was laced with fentanyl. And she, she took... Um, a counterfeit pill and Talking she died so in a women's shelter that. with I... a number of people um, in the women's shelter right outside her door and she couldn't get to help it's I mean mother. that's how I, I can't imagine and what how you must have been going potent just how hard it is for you to talk about that I just hope everybody who is listening to this podcast and is reading your article benefits from your openness and your honesty because that's just it's extremely difficult that there's a passage where you say, I had been so worried my daughter would lose her life to, due to alcohol, but in the end, she died due to her inability to get safe, effective control. I don't know if funny is the right word. I apologize. I, I want to say what is most tragic about all of this is that as a chronic pain patient, your experiences with opioids right. were very similar to your daughter's as a patient with a substance of medications, in her case, benzodiazepines, at a therapeutic dose from her prescriber. And what's really funny about all of this and its dependency and her relationship with her physician, her provider, and getting medications. And oftentimes we see 
these two at odds where we think chronic pain patients versus experiences. Uh, wh what do you see that was similar in your journey versus your daughter's? Obviously, your daughter is no longer here. There's a complete tragedy that's associated with that, that is patients with substance dependency or harm reduction based patients. But in reality, you see a lot more similarities than differences in the care. I, I can't even begin to fathom, but what similarities from a clinical standpoint can you parse together to help the listening audience better understand what we can do to better correlate medications with clinical conditions? Well, I think <clears throat> the bottom line is that yeah. first and foremost, they've, they've tied opioid, the word opioid has become synonymous with addiction and that it's a fallacy. Um, opioids have been used for thousands of years to treat pain. Um, they are effective at treating pain. That's why we use them. Um, addiction by prescription uh, happens in a very small percentage of patients treating, being treated with opiates. Um, and, and we know that. I mean, people, even over the decades, the last three or four decades have been getting opiates. And if really if it was a matter of just taking something and becoming addicted to it because you took it i think the addiction rate would have skyrocketed because yeah. you factor in surgeries and wisdom tooth removal if it was just once you get it you're hooked we would have far more people addicted to pain medications in our society the statistics bear out that addiction rates haven't changed since they've been tracking addiction rates it wasn't there's some questions about the whole in my mind about the whole opioid declaration when the opioid epidemic was declared we saw a rise in overdose deaths and there was an immediate reaction to ascribing it to an increased um, access to opiate medications. In fact, at a, in the early 2000s, late 1990s, um, doctors were mandated by government. They were being mandated to treat pain more aggressively. And at the same time, OxyContin had come onto the scene, I think, 1996. Um, and then we also suffered a, a national caused collective trauma with a terrorist attack. Uh, after that, we saw an economic collapse and people were going off to war and to fight the war on terror. The Wall Street and Fannie Mae, people were losing retirement um, accounts and money. And this was middle-class America that was being hit pretty hard. I think that we there was a rush to judgment to correlate an access increased access to medication Effective. crisis that we saw starting <clears throat> at that time. And I and I honestly believe that perhaps in the beginning there were good intentions um, to try to save lives. We we saw an issue, and I think leaders were being approached by parents like myself who were losing children and they were trying to help in whatever way they could but we had experts actually saying that as a fact that what they were correlating 
you know, instead of saying there is a correlation and it may not be a cause, they were just saying it was access period. It was an increased access. That's what's causing it. We need restrictions. We need to crack down on the prescribers, the prescribing, and try to save lives. That didn't work. It's not working because it wasn't the cause. I, I'm going to assert that right here and now. I have before. There were social determinants going on across the board at that time that are a far more likely candidate for why someone would probably start using a substance to alter how they felt, which was people were losing jobs in um, the Rust Belt. We had coal the coal industry was going down um, because we're looking for more um, ecological ways of approaching energy. Um, <clears throat> we had the economic collapse, the terrorist attack. We, our country was in turmoil. And instead of looking at the whole picture, we had experts who were saying, nope, it's the increased access, doctors are prescribing too much medication, we need to address it and it just went south from there I mean it just it spiraled out of control and took on a life of its own and as as the policies were created um, and I'll, I'll also talk about that a little bit maybe um, policy makers were being approached by addiction experts like Dr. Kolodny um, and other agencies um, and telling legislators that it's about access, we need restriction. Dr. Kolodny had formed PROP, who <coughs> ultimately published the opioid guidelines with the CDC, which, while they didn't say you needed to restrict patients from access, it kind of was clear that it was becoming um, taboo to prescribe these drugs, that they were dangerous drugs somehow. And legislators were taking all this information. They don't have any kind of medical background reference point and saying, okay, we're getting all these people hooked by these medications. We need to do something. Parents were demanding, right? Well, you know, and parents were demanding something be done. Loved ones of people dying. After the legislation started and policy started to change, um, I mean, we watched in the chronic community, the chronic pain community, some of us were watching the meetings where doctors were meeting in states to, to actually change the standard of care for pain uh, treatment. And they had little conferences, you know, for days trying to figure out how they were going to create new standard of care around Mor opioids morphine based on the CDC guidelines. And ultimately <clears throat> that started to incorporate the, the maximum morphine equivalent, um, which has no medical basis at all. Right? That has no medical grounds whatsoever because opiates are one of those drugs that based on metabolism tolerance um, and different factors patients vary widely in dosage uh, effective dosage and therapeutic dosage 
But we saw that shape policy. We saw that shape then the standard of care, which ultimately resulted in patients losing access. Um, doctors started to become afraid because they started to be targeted. Uh, they implemented the PDMP. Um, <laughs> doctors started getting basically a, a report card um, eventually as high prescribers for their their field of um, medicine and it, it just it spiraled out of control and what we saw too was that money became involved and lots of money for a lot of people um, we saw money funneled into every state through the AG's office law enforcement we saw monies being funneled into hospitals to address the opioid crisis. We saw monies yeah. being funneled into addiction treatment, um, which I'll tell you, being that my daughter had problems with addiction, I know that system is an ultimate disaster as far mm -hmm. as, you know, effectiveness and actually helping people. So, really, this issue... It, involves three different groups of people now and it involves pain patients in the name of saving lives um, it involves people who use drugs non-medically um, kids that are experimenting with drugs um, people who use drugs you know that some people call recreational use um, and it also involves people who are suffering from addiction there are three different groups of people well being harmed and those three groups of people were just mentioned by policies um, the policies that were supposed to be saving lives are not saving lives they're not saving um, people from uh, developing addiction people are still dying of overdose at record numbers now and chronic pain patients because they've tied the word opioid to addiction now chronic pain patients are suffering and dying too because they have three choices when they're basically cut off from needed medicine. They suffer, uh, sometimes for decades with their condition. They choose to opt out and may commit suicide. Oh. You draw these conclusions that health policy experts, clinicians are now starting to fully understand. You mentioned you had experience in the healthcare realm, working in some capacity, but most of your experience comes from direct ex lived experiences, as they say. From your vantage point, tying together what you went through with what health policymakers and clinicians are finally starting to understand, is it almost a form of validation or is it a sense of relief that now people are finally being honest and talking about what you've already seen? Okay. I, I, first, um, let me say we lost my stepson last weekend to an, to an overdose, probably involving fentanyl. So now we have lost two children. And thank you for telling us um, that. Um, it's not, valid. it's not validation in any way. Um, <clears throat> it, it, I don't think I can articulate the loss 
that I've experienced and that other families have experienced because of this, but my family's been particularly uh, harmed on just a number of levels. Um, because of the opioid crisis response. And my fear is that despite the validation of this all coming to light and, and the truth starting to kind of um, become more discussed in certain circles, that the policies that have been enacted and the fear that has been initiated by these policies even if we told doctors tomorrow, we pulled the guidelines, we, you know, said, doctors, go ahead and prescribe opioids, right? Just, just prescribe them for your patients. Uh, you're not going to get in trouble. Um, I don't think that they're, A, going to believe that, uh, that they would change prescribing habits because actually the, the public perception of opioids now is, is the dangerous drug narrative. And if anything happened to a patient, they could probably be sued through litigation, um, even if it was not the doctor's fault. I think that given the state of fear, um, when you just mention the word opioid now, that litigation would still be a possibility in the minds of many doctors, if not most, uh, even if the CDC said, go ahead, right? Um, so my fear is that even if we changed policy, we changed the standard of care back to what it was in early 2000s, if we uh, admitted that we got this whole thing wrong, that prescribing might not change all that much as it stands now. <clears throat> the damage is already done, right? The cognitive effects are already manifest. I think it's, it's a heavy burden. Um, that may be yeah. almost impossible to lift, or at least in my lifetime. Um, I mean, yeah. we have doctors right now going to school or being trained not something. to prescribe opiates because of the dangerous drug narrative. Um, they, they've admitted that. Nurse Correct. Correct. Or to prescribe a minimum, you know, or a maximum of a few days after surgery, which... Uh, uh, that was a part of my story I had to leave out of my article. I mean, I had two, let's see, um, three surgeries after I was uh, lost access to pain medication. And post-surgical care was a nightmare during those periods of time for me. It This issue has affected every aspect of pain care from emergency, trauma, pain care, to post-surgical to long-term yeah. opioid therapy for chronic pain patients. What comes to mind, Ariana, is uh, just credible and respectable you appear when you're telling a very harrowing story of you and your family. Um, m my question to you, and you know, I only ask because I think it's important to touch on this. I mean, I can talk about my personal experiences as well. Um, it, isn't it hard to talk about? Isn't it hard to share this experience and expect people to understand that? T talk, talk through some of that more sensitive aspects because it's just incredible how brave you are. Um, 
we talk often uh, about how important our stories are, our personal stories, and they are. The problem with personal stories uh, is that people listening to them can only can only experience them um, in that third person, you know, viewing. And the full impact that's happening to a person when they lose the ability to function, they lose their marriage, they lose their ability to be a parent fully, um, they lose their child to this insanity. It's, it becomes a headline, it becomes a, a, a clip, it becomes um, a statistic uh, to people li listening. Um, I think that the stories are important in, in context, but I know too that a lot of people can't relate to chronic pain. They can't relate to losing a child. You have to actually have that experience in order to fully understand um, the impact on your psyche on there are days when I cannot breathe when I think about my daughter losing her life uh, laying on a floor um, trying to because they found her on a floor on the floor um, it looked like she had gotten out of her bed and had been trying to get to the door it was a few steps from her bed to the door to where she could get help so there are days when I think about that when I can barely function, when I can barely breathe. I look at her picture and my world has changed forever. And until you're in that position, um, you can't fully comprehend what that means. And in, in reference to chronic pain, um, we tell our stories, you know, like at the beginning, you asked me my journey, my, how did this begin? And we've, we try to tell people that it takes 30 seconds for you to have your life changed forever. It took less than 30 seconds for me to get that injury that changed my life forever. You go to your doctor and you sit down and it takes less than 30 seconds for that doctor to give you a diagnosis of cancer or a chronic illness that is causing you pain and that will for the duration of your life which could be decades and people don't have the ability to realize what chronic pain actually means it is pain 24 hours a day um, every single day for years for decades and I think it's a survival technique for humans because I think people who have experienced pain know in reference, I've experienced, like they say, I've experienced severe pain, but it's transient. It ends. There's an end. And with chronic pain, there is no end. And we don't have the ability as human beings to really wrap our head around that when we're thinking about it and not experiencing it because I think it's survival because if you know that you're facing chronic pain every single day for the rest of your life with no way to mediate yeah, it I mean, my heart goes out to you I, I, I we all have our journeys we all have our ups and downs uh, 
and I mean that's putting it lightly, but it's just you know just a mother's strength. I mean, the, you know the phrases that came out. You said, "My loving, fierce, beautiful child," and I, I can only imagine, you know, what it took for you to write that after listening to you speak just now. It's a, uh, it's unbelievable, and I think what you said encapsulates it so beautifully. Healthcare is in the moments, right? There can be a good moment, there can be a bad moment, and those moments can impact your life materially for as long as you live, for the rest of your days. And I don't think people really understand that. Um, and the remaining time that we have, I, I would like you to talk about certain strength that's apparent, the strength that you develop, because your words were very powerful, your voice is very powerful, You've developed, a, and for those who are learning to build that strength or would like to learn to how you built your strength, can you give some advice to those listening? I've been through a lot in my life. Um, we talk about lived experience, and I have more than I like to draw from um, on a number of levels. Uh, my strength comes from having to rise to the occasion um, and watching in this in relationship to this issue I felt it was necessary to raise my voice because I knew in 2012-13 when it was happening to me that it wasn't going to end with pain contracts and drug testing and I could see where this was headed and it was important to me in that moment to become a voice, uh, to articulate what was happening and to try to stop it. Because in my very first article that was published, an op-ed, um, I talked about how this is going to morph into other medications. This is going to affect people with mental health issues like ADHD, like PTSD and panic disorder. Um, I, it was obvious what was happening, and um, so uh, I took up the banner, the standard, and started advocating, and the more that I learned, the more concerned I became, and the more collateral damage I saw happening as the years went by, and I saw people dying, I saw pa pain patients that were committing suicide, I saw pain patients that were being cut off from needed medicine, losing their ability to work and function. I saw what was happening in the addiction community, in my own family, um, in, in relationship to addiction and recovery. I saw just failed policy after failed policy after failed policy harming so many. And it became... Uh, necessary. I mean, this is about saving lives. It's supposed to be about saving lives. And what we're seeing is that these policies and our approach to this have, have done the opposite. It has actually harmed people, the, the communities where drug use and addiction are concerned. It's harming those people. And it's also harming now chronic pain patients and it's it's harming doctors doctors are being put in jail 
doctors are in fear of losing their DEA license or their practice. Um, this is harming so many people that it's necessary for everyone to know the truth, to realize that this was all based on a theory that um, basically Andrew Kolodny and the group PROP brought to CDC and said, we're seeing overdoses happen. We think it's because of access. We need to restrict prescribing. And it is obvious that that is not what caused this. It is not what is driving overdoses. It is illicit fentanyl. It is, it is deadly street drugs, which are being made worse by prohibition-like policies. And we need to do an about-face. And we need to try to heal this. Because if this is about saving lives, uh, we need to address this now. Our leaders need to take control of this situation. They need to walk back this opioid dangerous drug narrative because it is a, a falsehood. No. And it is harming people. It is killing people. And if we don't, the only question is how many more body bags. With that, I want to leave the audience with... Uh opportunity to get a hold of you uh, for those who are interested in advocacy or learning more I'm on Twitter I found it's the best platform I'm on Facebook but I don't do a lot of pain advocacy there um, I haven't really found a lot of momentum on Facebook unfortunately and um, yeah you can connect with me on Twitter and um, we can start 